Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called but of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Times are uncertain, but your job doesn't have to be. Fidelity Investments is hiring for tech roles in Ireland. Apply now at fidelityinvestments.ie. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Wechter, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. And this week we're joined by Jonathan Ruan, a Sligo man who's now a superstar lecturer in Massachusetts Institute of uh, Technology, uh, among other things. He's also an adjunct, uh, adjunct professor in Trinity and the co-founder and CEO of Eventivate, which was a software firm uh, supplier to the hotel industry that he sold in 2016. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adrian. Great to be here. Jonathan, uh, we're going to talk about things like um, funding gap, uh, AI, machine learning, all of that stuff, some of the stuff that you've been writing about recently. First, I have to ask you about MIT. When I think about MIT, I think about Goodwill Hunting and Matt Damon and, and all that sort of stuff. What's it like teaching there? Um, I mean, it's identical to the movie, really. (laughs) Um, Were you the guy writing on the Blackbird who was discovered? No, I was more like his friend who was digging up the roads and uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and didn't really, and you had a smart friend. Um, I mean, I have to say, I do really enjoy the place. It is a fantastic environment in which to spend a lot of time. Um, and it never really grows old in terms of all the new stuff that is happening. It's hugely energetic. It's, you know, a fountain of knowledge. I suppose it is worth pointing out, though, it's not, maybe not as big, certainly, as, you know, the reputation it has. It's quite a small institute. By Irish mm-hmm. standards, it would be smaller than any Irish university in terms of the, the student population, at least. I think there's only about 800 undergrads a year. So it's a research institute as much as a university, which maybe we don't have that much experience in in Ireland. We don't really have anything that's directly comparable. But it, yeah, I love it. The opportunity. Is it not intimidating, like walking in there? Like, what was it like going in for your first lecture? Certainly. I mean, it is intimidating. And I suppose one of the things, you know, I certainly have imposter syndrome, but I hear nearly everybody else there does as well. Um, If you were to think about that kind of stuff too long, you probably wouldn't turn up for your first day of teaching. Uh, You do get to work with lots of Nobel Prize winners, um, people who've run large organizations like the IMF and World Bank and places like that, people who invent amazing technology. But what you realize is that the the culture there is very interesting. And it's a culture of openness. And so in some universities, some academic institutions, there's a focus on top-down type of uh, research and structure, but that is not the case at MIT. And so um, there's good things and there's bad things to that. So oftentimes I had a colleague who moved over from Harvard and uh, within a first couple of weeks was asking me, you know, who do I go to to talk about X, Y, and Z? You know, like surely there should be some sort of organization uh, structure here. And the answer was, no, there's not. I don't know who you go talk to, but like, uh, you know, just go over the other side of campus and start asking around. So um, it's very much a decentralized organization. And what that means then is that at the individual level, you can 
collaborate and work with people very quickly, try something out, and if it doesn't work, just move on. So everybody's office door is open, I would say, in, in a real way, both to the university and then, you know, the faculty as well. It's, it's you know, it's uh, exhilarating working there. Are you, are you the only Irish person there of your own acquaintance? No, there's not many of us. Um, there is an amazingly talented lady who uh, became a professor there last year. She's in biomedical engineering. Um, and I, would, I think we're the only two on the faculty who have Irish accents. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and then there is a handful of Irish students coming through every year. Um, there's one of my good friends um, who uh, finished his PhD. We just did his defense in the last week. He's been there for about five or six years. And then there's always a few grad students coming through. But one of the things every now and then an Irish person reaches out to me and says they're interested in coming. And I, and I couldn't be more, um, you know, enthusiastic and encouraging. I think we're highly underrepresented on campus. And funnily enough, um, it, you know, uh, I, I know Harvard a lot better as well. I can't speak for all the other, you know, universities in the US, but a lot more Irish people go to Harvard than come to MIT for whatever reason, I don't know. And um, because mm. there are plenty of opportunities for Irish people to go there and Irish people excel when they, when they land on campus. Of course, MIT has a very famous dropout um, from Ireland who went on to uh, found a company that's now worth 30 five billion dollars patrick collison yes and uh, the last time i spoke to him he said he actually still intends at some point to go and complete his uh complete his degree there well he'd be very welcome back and i can tell you he'd be very welcome into my class <laughs> <laughs> okay fair enough no I, I i i'm joking of course i mean patrick would be would be known on campus known of uh, i i went there about five years ago and the generations of Irish people kind of overlap with each other. So I never knew them, but the people who were, you know, so there a little bit before me were still around when, 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 I, was, when I arrived on campus. Um, they knew them. And, and, and there's been some other, you know, amazing Irish people have gone through there and done enormously impressive things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, before we get on to some of the other stuff that you've been writing about, uh, last week I had a guy on called Mike Fierick. And he founded a platform called Allison.com. Very interesting company based in Galway, has millions of uh, registered users. Now, the last year or two, he's been on a bit of a, uh, he's been putting the boot in to the existing university and college model. And one of his theories is that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to accelerate a trend, which in his view uh, refocuses learning and uh, the bulk of meaningful education to a more distributed online model. Um, given, you know, I'm talking to somebody who has a, a very deep engagement with some of the best institutions at MIT here, here in Trinity College as well. Um, do you think any of that holds water? I definitely do. Um, I'm not exactly sure what version of the future is going to transpire, but I think the current model will evolve. So platforms like Mike's will be hugely important um, in the way that that's shaped. Um, I don't think it's a all or nothing, like, you know, it's just you go to MIT or Trinity or UCD, or, you know, you just do uh, vocational type learning and, 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 and top-ups, but the traditional system definitely needs upgrading. Um, I won't say I understand all of what Mike talks about. I know generally about these types of platforms. And I think the you know elements at the fringe that certainly uh, could lend themselves to a different model, there are plenty of classes that could be delivered, classes or modules, not entire degrees, but parts of a, of a degree that could be delivered offline. Uh, sorry, it could, could be delivered online. I think there are still plenty of elements that need to be delivered in person. And there are plenty of other reasons to go to college other than just educational attainment. Um, I saw, you know, um, it, there, there was a piece of research going around last year. I can't remember the exact split, but what they were trying to do is split out how much value a student gets from going to an Ivy League U.S. university that's education and how much of it is signaling. 
So a lot of what we get the piece of paper for is so that we can show to a potential employer, usually in the short term, maybe even in the long term, that I have been accepted by a reputable organization. Um, they did the pre-qualification on me, and then I passed all my exams, which means I lived up to their standard, and now here's the diploma or the certificate. And so, you know, that's a, 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 an element of signaling. We'd call that in economics, you know? Mm. And the exact split, I think, has definitely changed over time. And it changes for different individuals. Some people absolutely love learning. That's what they go there for. And they thrive on that. And then they continue learning all the way through their lives. Other people go there to party and explore what it is that they're interested in and grow up a little bit or expand their horizons or play sport or do all kinds of other things. I'm presuming not that many people go to MIT, MIT to party. Well, I can tell you that not that many go to play sport, but um, no. we wouldn't be well known. Although I do have a fascinating anecdote. There, there is a, a Venn diagram of people who go to MIT to study pure maths. And I, e- even within the MIT world, people who do pure maths, it's, 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 uh, it's well up there. And then there's a, a Venn diagram, a circle of people who've played professional NFL football. And there, if you overlap the two of them, there's only one person who overlaps both of them. There was a, there's a guy currently doing his PhD at MIT that up until last year was concurrently um, uh, playing NFL football. So we do have the we do have an. Who was that, person. and what was he? What position was he playing? I, I'm afraid I actually don't know his name wow. off the top of my head, but um, uh, I'm not yet. Yeah, it's probably so. The, so the brain concussion theory about NFL <laughs> may not uh, damage you too too much. I wouldn't extrapolate too much. When the N is one, I don't think it's that scientific. But mm. um, uh, the, you know... But I take uh, your point about the networking because, for example, tr- take Trinity. One of the things that has been repeated about that university is that it produces a lot of people that go on to create startups and it, it attracts a lot of VC funding. Now, I'm guessing that that's not something that is related purely and simply to the curriculum. I'm guessing that that is, there's a, a networking uh, effect there, coefficient that's going on between people who are buzzing off each other. There's serendipity. And that element of going to college, going physically to a place, um, you know, uh, being around uh, uh, pe- people you might find interesting, maybe that's the element. Maybe that's the X factor. Yeah. It's very difficult to disentangle, let's call it the, the X factor, whether it comes to innovation, high performance in, in kind of any organization, whether that's a university mm. setting or not. But, you know, one of the things we know about human innovation and human knowledge sharing is that it is proximity driven. And this will be interesting to see what happens with the current uh, crisis and everybody communicating via Zoom. But, you know, economists will uh, look at this and it's part of a group of effects called agglomeration, which is, you know, usually we're, we're, we're better off in terms of innovation and knowledge sharing when we're grouped together. We have an ability to interact with each other, share ideas, and then you've got this idea, then I've got that idea. And if you're available for a cup of coffee and you're in Kendall Square um, and, you know, it's um, there's an intersection there in, at, the, at the square and it's not a large place and the companies within one square mile of that have a, uh, th- that have been created within one square mile of, of that intersection um, turnover, I think it's $7 trillion. And so mm. it's an incredibly innovative place. So why is it? Is there something in the soil there? Of course there's not. It's not magic. But what we do know is that if you bring people together like that, um, that that's a naturally occurring phenomenon. In terms of course, of I- Irish people are pretty good at that in other fields. They're pretty good at um, being networkers, at uh, meeting people for coffee, asking people for coffee when we're attending uh, a coffee meeting, being the person who will either crack a joke or in some other way become the glue of the group. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think people, Irish people uh, have no... No problems with that element of it. And I think the, the networking capability is only one factor. The second thing is, though, like, um, 
if you're going to talk about innovation and company starting, you know, there's obviously lots of other parts that we could talk about. But if you're mm. just going to talk about that, you can be a brilliant networker. But if you're, if the physical availability of other networkers means that you don't ever get to talk to somebody who started a billion dollar unicorn, not that they're there, the be all and end all. But if you never meet somebody like that, no matter how great your network and skills are when you when you are there for the coffee if you never have coffee with somebody like that it is it is more likely that sorry it is less likely then that you will go on to to achieve that feat yourself mm, yeah well you, you would know you 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 were a company founder you sold the company in uh, in 2016 you wrote a very interesting piece for us actually uh, about 10 days ago and that this was getting around some of the issues around the difference between indigenous firms, multinationals, where we sit now in Ireland in this pandemic. You made some interesting points um, comparing the two multinationals and indigenous companies, not an especially flattering portrait of uh, indigenous firms, partly, you say, because we just don't invest as much money in research, in, in R&D and long-term thinking as the big multinationals do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I co-wrote that piece. Um, and so the, I co-wrote with a guy called Simon Johnson. Simon Johnson, yeah. Yeah, Simon used to be chief economist of the IMF. He recently wrote a book called Jumpstart in America. So, and, and he's a guy I collaborate a lot with academically. Um, and so we were looking at this from the perspective of not just Ireland, I should say, although the, the piece was obviously written about Ireland. So there's some international context here in terms of, you know, work we have done and and Simon has led in terms of looking at industrial policy and innovation policy, policy, regional policy all around the world, and in particular how in, in his most recent book about um, about the United States. So when we came and started looking at the point of view from Ireland, I would start to, for, from the point of view that I think Ireland has shown that when it wants to do business policy, industrial policy, whatever you want to call it, we can be amazing at it. So I'll give you my, you know, two existing proofs of that. One is the decision that we were going to be a, a base that uh, international, multinational corporations would come uh, to manufacture, to provide services from. And if you had gone back 20 or 30 years and shown anybody in the country, any of the innovation, or sorry, any of the policy leaders at the time, any of the citizens at the time, you'd show them what we've managed to deliver on that policy today, I don't think anybody could have believed you. It's been mm. absolutely phenomenal. I mean, well, we're always point- quite cynical along the way. I mean, we still are. I mean, if you talk about multinationals, for example, um, there are two views of multinationals in the pandemic at the moment in Ireland. One is that it's business as usual and they're just here for what they can make. And the other is that, my God, thank God we have a few anchor industrial tenants here who are still employing. I mean, Apple and Cork, still, they're, they're not going to cut any jobs down there. Facebook in Dublin, almost 5,000, they're not going to cut jobs. Uh, Google, 8,000 plus, plus here, they're not cutting jobs. And from those bases, you know, you could argue that that's still why many of the smaller companies are landing in Ireland, literally to try and hire from those companies and set up their own bases here. They absolutely are. I mean, I don't know how you could argue against being positive about that story as you've just described it. I mean, if you look around the world, um, that we, we don't have April data yet, but we certainly have March export data for most large economies around the world. Uh, Europe minus 10% for exports for for March. America minus 10%. I think the UK was about minus 13%. What did Ireland do? We had our record ever month for exports out of this nation. That's something we should be very positive about. I mean, just because something is doing well doesn't mean that it's taken away from something else. Just because something is doing well doesn't mean it's perfect. I don't, for for a minute, believe that everything to do with the multinational story in Ireland is rosy and that we, you know. But yeah, I mean, um, there is the other side to the argument, which has been made on this podcast and uh, by many others. There still is the the larger global macro view about tax policy and sort of justice and. Uh, you know, companies Inquiry. using one jurisdiction. I mean, in the states, I've just finished Bob Woodward's uh, book *Fear* about the uh, the Trump, the first year of the Trump presidency, mm. and they. I mean, you mentioned Simon Johnson. You mentioned uh, U.S. Uh, commentators. 
they're very, they, they, that was a big focus at the beginning of Trump's presidency. You know, either take the tax rate right down here in the US or start taking meaningful action against uh, other countries. We, in Europe, we see that the Germans and the French have, this has been a running theme for four or five years. We've had to give up quite a lot. We may have to, to give up more, but, um, but, but even still, we have always had to bat with the, for Ireland and, and because they employ so many people and they're so important to the economy here. Right. Um, you know, there is no perfect answer here. We've got to thread the needle around what's right for Ireland, what's right for like a global justice and equality point of view, what we can get away with within Europe, what these firms are looking for. And I think we've done a pretty good job up until now. I, um, we, you know, we have to realize that the Ireland is not blessed with the natural resources that are allow that are going to enable us um, to become a very wealthy country. So we do we have wind. Trade-offs. We have wind, which is important. But if that's all we had, and we hadn't executed previous industrial policies, we'd still be a developing country. So mm. Irish people, rightly, have very high expectations for standard of living. And those expectations are rising on a constant basis. So we need to ask ourselves, what trade-offs do we need to make so that we can achieve those aspirations? Because there is no policy, there's no magic bullet, there's no silver bullet out there that's going to enable us to be able to give the healthcare that we want, that's going to be enable us to give free housing to people who need it without us making some trade-offs. And in the past, we've done this. You know, everybody, I, I probably can't name one other minister of education. I don't even know the current one, I'm ashamed to say. But I do know the name of one, and that's Don O'Malley. And he was the man who introduced free secondary education into Ireland. And there, there's almost a folklore around that decision. What a brilliant decision it was from a human rights point of view. Of course, looking back, it seems obvious now. It wasn't so obvious at the time. But what it enabled us to do is to move from essentially an agrarian-focused e economy forward to where we are today because education was a key part of that. But that took sacrifice. That wasn't, you know, the monies that were used for that um, could have been diverted elsewhere. Now we've, we, we've, you know, we've ridden this right way very well. You know, we, we focused on a knowledge economy. We focused on uh, pharmaceuticals. They were the type of firms that we got to come here. We supplemented that with investment in, um, in education. Taxes foregone are an investment. It doesn't feel like it, but, you know, technically they are. Um, we also invested heavily in it after the last recession with austerity because we invested, if you like, although it seems kind of cruel, in remaining competitive by driving down the cost base. I, I don't mean to sound cruel, but in economic terms, that's kind of what we did, right? So we've made enormous investments in education and tax policy, sacrifice, etc., to get us where we are today. And that has risen the standards of living in Ireland. Probably we're in the top two or three countries in the world, I would argue, maybe up there with Singapore, South Korea, in terms of countries who've executed this plan over the last three decades so well. But the same plan that's worked for us for the last three decades, if you continue this forward, it's not going to, I think that there is, a, a gap opening up between the potential for what that plan, if we keep on that, can deliver and what people's expectations for the future are. Um, and I think that we need to have a conversation about uh, acknowledging that, you know, staying on the same plan probably won't do it for us. And so now we're, now, now we're into the discussion about trade-offs. So mm -hmm. what are we willing to invest? What are we willing to sacrifice in the short term so that we can have a better long-term future? Um, you, I've got some ideas on it. I'm, uh, you know, loads of other people have good ideas on it, but I'd rather we talk about that than pretend that we can, you know, just keep doing business as usual and things will keep, mm. you know, improving forever. Well, I, one of the organizations here in Ireland that has uh, come forward with a few ideas around this, is an organization called Scale Ireland, which is a kind of a collaboration between some investors, some business people, some yeah. startups, people that some of the listeners to this podcast will probably recognize. Now, they have come out over the last year or so with a few ideas and a few plans. Some of it does come back to this idea of more government support, uh, funding, uh, maybe tax reform around uh, startups in, in particular. Whenever that, you know, as someone who writes about this, whenever 
that idea is floated. And whenever I write a story about it, I do get some feedback from some sections to say, hold on a second. I thought the definition of a startup and an innovative firm was that it was capable of driving something forward and disrupting without the need for state money, because that just makes it like any other sector, right? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, it all depends on what time horizon you want to look at, because they certainly in the United States and lots of areas we would, um, you know, in Kendall Square, in Cambridge, in Silicon Valley, etc., um, the need for government in a, a government money, for example, to fund the Facebooks and the stripes of this world, you would argue, well, you know, we don't really need the government money. But but let's go back a little bit of time and and understand that these pockets of innovation and um, that now are um, self-propelling, that they started out with government funding. Um, and government-type funding. Of course, it works a little bit different in the United States. But broadly, what do you mean, like the military or? Sure, yeah, the military. You look at also the percentage of of the U.S. budget that they spend on R and D, especially if you go back to you know the '60s and '70s. It's definitely decreased now, but in absolute terms, it's still a phenomenal amount of money. You mm. look at you know Ireland benefits certainly from the pharmaceutical industry, but you look at the investment that the United States makes through the NIH which is there essentially they're like uh, healthcare and pharmaceutical biotech investment firms. You look at places like MIT, I mean, um, the annual budget in Ireland for Science Foundation Ireland, which is, uh, you know, the basic research, I suppose, mm. uh, focus part. It's not the only research budget that's around. There's plenty of European money or whatever. Um, but you look at it and... I, I think it's running about 180 million euros a year. And you look at one research institute, which is MIT, our research budget, not including administration, because Science Foundation Ireland does have to pay administration, uh, MIT's research budget's over $2 billion a year. So in terms of absolute amount of money that's pumped into the system, it is phenomenal in the United States. And a lot of that comes from government, of course, there's private sector investment, but that kind of investment in research. Then you create these innovation zones, which attracts private capital. Wall Street capital did not come to Cambridge and Silicon Valley uh, in any way the same scale 20 years ago. When these firms became the drivers of economic growth, maybe I should say 30 years ago, but when these areas became the drivers of economic growth, then the capital comes in. Now, in Ireland, we're closer to, you know, for, we don't have that right now. We don't have, you know, people who, who manage trillions of dollars or at least hundreds of billions uh, wanting to get a piece of our action. So what we probably have to do is consider um, government spending in the short term. Mm -hmm. And we've got to back ourselves like we did with free secondary education, like we've done with so many other things, that we believe in our people, that we believe in our capabilities, and we will have to forward spend on this, but it's an investment to get that kind of motion going. And then, of course, once the nation grows wealthier, um, it can certainly start to stand on its own two feet. Uh, it's a very interesting argument. I remember talking to uh, Ray Nolan, a fairly well-known tech investor here and been involved in a few companies. And his idea, sort of radical, was that Enterprise Ireland's uh, funding scheme, that they should just be hand over I don't know, 100,000 euro or 200,000 euro, kind of no questions asked if the startup put up their own money on the basis that if th they would be paying salaries and a lot of it would come back in tax anyway. But when people hear, um, you know, funding and support, they start to think about the guy down the road who owns three properties and runs a pub and is there, how can he get in on on this action and no, maybe no. maybe we're wrong to be to be to be that cynical i will look i mean i i come from the point of view with a lot of these things when you're looking at policy and you're looking at strategy just assume there's no bad actors for a start and that everybody is doing their best this is ireland by the way <laughs> exactly, exactly i don't mean in terms of bad actors. i mean in the assumpt the cynical assumption that there'll be no bad act right well i you know i think i think it's a useful academic exercise maybe i'm lucky that i can do such a thing but if you take that from a starting point of view and say like you know um 
I'm not going to knock politicians. I'm not going to knock Enterprise Ireland. And you say, you look at all the, these kinds of um, entities. No, sorry. It's not, I'm not going to on this podcast I'm, right now for this conversation. I may for other things um, and do. But there's something in the Irish psyche. Maybe you've tapped into it there a little bit. I have some other ideas on it that says that as a nation, we don't believe in funding impressing our TDs and our ministers to back more indigenous Irish firms that are going to become high growth. I don't think that the politicians are in some way never heard about this policy or that Enterprise Ireland doesn't know about these kinds of things. I think they're a reflection of the fact that society doesn't want them handing out 100,000 euro checks, not to pick on Ray's point. I'm sure he had more detail to it, but just, you know, to elaborate on this. So I'd come up from the point of view of looking at this from, you know, why do Irish people not believe it in their hearts that it is the way that we're going to take, make a step change in our standards of living? People do not connect investment in science and research in Ireland with us being able to have a single uh, payer health care system. Mm. If we are going to turn off private health care and going to go entirely government funded, um, how are we going to be wealthy enough to do that? If we're going to enable our people to have a higher industry, a higher average wage so they can afford better things, whether it be uh, housing, etc., how are we going to do that? And so I think that so far a lot of the use cases that people have seen are not compelling to them from a, a belief point of view. I grew up in, in rural Ireland. So let's take a, a, a company that that's going to – make it to the front of the business page in the Irish Independent. They just had a sale for 100 million euros. For a lot of people who live outside of that bubble, and it's a very tiny bubble, they don't look at that and say, well, you know, maybe the state got 30 million out of it between an EI investment and some capital gains tax. Wow, 30 million, that's great. Because they don't feel part of that success. It's disconnected. Mm. And so one of the things that I think would change the Irish psyche around this if if we had more regional winners. People want to be part of that success story. They want to contribute to it. There's amazing people all over the, you know, you've talked about, I'm from County Sligo, Mayo, whatever, it doesn't carry. You're just over. about in County Sligo. Just, just about, about, but it's importantly, yeah. Just, <laughs> on the Mayo border. A mile from Mayo border, yeah. But, you know, if we have regional champions that are employing hundreds of people, that creates a sense of, yeah, we were involved in that success. And you know what? The next time that there's a general election, I want to hear about the major political parties funding innovation and research because um, people in my local town, uh, lots of them work for multinationals and they're pr proud of their work, etc. But they don't necessarily feel that that company is Irish. Mm. And if we're going to really change how it is that we view basic research and understand, and it, it, you know, I, I get it. it, it does take a leap of faith to be able to see the difference between putting in a substantial proportion of our GDP into basic research and knowing that the vast majority of that will never lead to anything, but something out of it will actually lead to a breakthrough in some form of cancer or some form of new technology that I mean, I've seen it because I've had the chance to step back, to study it uh, academically, but also see it in practice. And I'm a huge believer in it, but we've got to think about, you know, people aren't going to believe Jonathan Ruan, so what? Um, I think if we can see more of these success stories all around the country, that's what I think will, will, will change the tide. Your point is well taken on regional champions. I mean, it, one of the most curious things about the whole Sean Quinn saga uh, in the in the border was on the face of it you had a case where it looked like there was some very high risk um financial hmm. uh, decisions being made and it led to quite a quite significant loss but on the other hand the locals because he was one of their own there are still a lot of people there um who would who would really defend him and would, would say that he was a great thing for the area and who would go to bat for him. A couple of colleagues of mine, Ian Kell and Gavin Daly, wrote a book about it. Yeah. And, um, but they, they felt ownership of that, regardless of the, of the macro results. I, I hate to say it, 
because I don't want anybody to take the full Sean Quinn story, but there's elements of the Sean Quinn story that we should be replicating and looking to replicate and look to actively invest in. Um, and uh, the people have the capability. That's not something you can say about every country in the world. I don't think I could make this same argument about everywhere in America because Truthfully speaking, education is not well distributed across the United States or access to it. Where it is here, it's not perfect. I'm not claiming that. But I think it's, you know, capability is everywhere. We just have to find ways to unlock it. Um, and so if we can create more domestically created uh, firms that employ reasonable numbers of people, you know, hundreds, couple of hundred people, and they're dotted all around the country. And they see us exporting all around the world. And they're part of that company and their families are part of that company. That creates that, that uh, belief in the system that I think will be so powerful. And so when I think about you know, uh, innovation-driven companies, think about what Scale Ireland are doing and lots of other uh, amazing people in this area, um, I think a little bit too to how we focused on our healthcare system when we looked at cancer. And it was a very tough decision for the regions in particular to accept centers of excellence. If you're from the northwest of Ireland, you know all about this. Um, and lots of other parts of the country, obviously, I'm speaking to what I know best. But, um, but the, truth, you know, the, 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 the truth is this has led to a dramatic reduction in, uh, in cancer in this country and an improvement in the statistics if you get a, you know, the, um, that diagnosis. And that meant that we had to make tough decisions. We've got to prioritize We've got to accept that we need to build centers of excellence in terms of, in terms of research. I'm not, you know, we talked about the education model. I don't know why every Irish university does a bit of everything. It seems to be, I'm sure there's a good reason for it, but I personally wouldn't be a fan of it. Like at MIT, we don't have a medicine school. We don't have a dentistry school. I'm sure we could spin those things up and I'm sure we'd get lots of people to pay lots of money to come and do there and get the badge, but that's not what we're about. We focus on where we're good and go deep. We, uh, we've, we have a different view of what a college or a university here is in Ireland. I've had this debate for years with, uh, with people. I personally have a view that we're not as ambitious in third level or in education in general as we might be. We've done an amazing job, as you said, in bringing overall the population up to a standard where most of us can now, you know, uh, uh, bend our talents to uh, one thing or another. But when it comes to that next step to, to, you know, the PhDs, to the Nobel Prizes, all the stuff that you were talking about earlier, we're very ambivalent about that in Ireland. We're, we're, when, when, if anybody tries to advocate it as a policy, whether it's the funding debate over universities or anything else, a lot of the response and the feedback you get is, that's a first world luxury. We shouldn't be thinking about that. What we should always think about you know, are the other things first. And it's this word elite, it's a dirty word. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's a personal view, but um, I, I've, I've written about that a little bit. And I've talked to a lot of people in uh, universities and colleges about this right up to, you know, uh, I remember talking to DCU, um, yeah. DCU's Brian McCraw about this um, and, and that really affects things like funding. And then it also affects where the universities are. I mean, they're slipping further and further outside the top 100, 200 because other countries, universities are investing. And, and we're not in the same way, you know? We're, we're not. And um, I, I certainly don't have any idea how we're going to change that. I think the universities and, and policymakers need to play a part. But I do believe a lot of it comes at the end of the day from our citizens that we don't believe in, in this way to improve lives, to invest now in these kind of, you know, it, it, I mean... Uh, why do we want to have elite sports people? Elite is not a dirty word when we talk about our rugby players. It's something that we should be aspirational towards. I don't believe in elitism, which is, you know, people thinking they're, they're better than other people. Um, but I, I'd be proud of having, and I, and I think a lot of times when we look back, there's some amazing stories about incredible Irish um, physicists and inventors of 
you know, all descriptions who have gone before us and we're proud of them then. Um, but we're kind of proud of them. Right. We're kind, we're proud of them for their achievement and their success. It's not apparent to me that we're proud of them because for the intellectual rigor or anything. Now this, I, I realize I can hear myself talking and it sound like some sort of a snob or something. I really am not, but there is definitely a strain of anti-intellectualism, yeah. which is to sort of say, like, if you take, say, take Stripe, for example, the Collisons, like at every point during their success, I followed them for eight, nine years. At every point during their success, they kept getting a higher valuation and almost to a person, whenever I would talk about it, the reaction was, God, why don't they sell it? Like, you know, it's worth a hundred million now, then it's worth mm. 400 million, then a billion. And it, it was, wow, it's amazing. But there was, there was never really an appreciation for the idea of what they're trying to do or the rigor that they put into it. It was more just that they're now famous and they've got, you know, they're worth a lot of money or that, or that maybe they're doing us proud abroad. That's a very big thing. Uh, uh, with us now, I know a lot of it is com- this is common to 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 many countries. This is not specifically an Irish thing, but I I just think that I, for me there is an anti intellectualism here that is ambivalent. Maybe not anti, but it's ambivalent toward some of the the finer or, or I don't know how to phrase yeah. it. I sound like a total wanker if you excuse my <laughs> my English, but yeah. it, it which is just not that interested in some of the things that the universities are really pushing for, which is kind of excellence, and to advance humanity, yeah. we're yeah. more interested in, in other things, you know? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, like, look, I mean, the things that we're inventing around the world are amazing today. Absolutely amazing. So the fact that we're communicating right now, the technology that has been developed to enable something like this is just incredible. The fact that when most people go into the hospital for most kinds of problems, there are readily available treatments. It's mind-boggling when you spend time with people, with clinicians who work in research, and you see the depths and focus and decades of attention that they have to put in to maybe develop one new type of, of, of treatment. It's phenomenal. And so we're living in these incredible times, and we seem to want to press pause and say, well, all of that just came, you know, it just, well, it's, it's here now, so we can write all that off. And we can assume progress will just keep happening. So all we've got to focus on is how we redistribute. I'm not against redistribution in this. So I'm pro redistribution, which I think you can do, but also I'm pro investing in the future. Um, and I think, look, I, I think one of the problems here in, um, I, I'm not here, I'm not going to knock government policy in Ireland or, or really in, in, in a lot of other countries have some ideas on how you do it differently. But I, want, I, I do wonder, is there an opportunity for some leadership here? You know, I, I did live in America for a short time when Obama was president. Obviously, most of the time it's been Trump. Um, and is there an opportunity here to catch the imagination in Ireland in, sh- in terms of maybe, we, maybe it's not about showing them all the statistics and I can give you all the numbers or whatever, but it, about appealing to people uh, through stories and, 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 and connecting with them to show uh, and get them on side for the idea of what's required to get to the next level. Um, and if there is an anti-intellectualism, if there's an anti-elitism, why is that the case? What can we do to make sure that there's not a, a separation, like mm. somebody is elite, but like, do they not have a mother? Do they not have a father that's sick? Do, you know, do they not, uh, at some stage, were they not a poor grad student? You know, they, maybe the vacuum is around leadership. Maybe that's where we need to focus it. And maybe we need leaders who are willing to stand up and tell those stories. Um, but I, I, mean, I, think I, I, I know this isn't, we're not here really to talk about, you know, uh, politics only insofar as it uh, influences innovation but we are in a risky time at the moment because what can what i might call anti-elitism or anti-electualism can stray into populism and there's no question the last four or five years not least in the u.s where you spent a lot of your time but also uh, certainly in europe definitely in britain and now even pockets of it in ireland Sure. Uh, this the populism that that this there's an elite layer that are governing us and they're not really responsible and they're not in step with the values of you uh, uh, at home. It's a very tricky time to be tackling all of this. 
Yeah, very, very difficult. And I, I get where some of the, where plenty of the sentiment comes from. I wouldn't agree with the, with the, some of the commentary made, but I get where it comes from. Um, the them and us, mm. you're not listening to us. But it's also easy. It's easy. Like anybody with a, 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 a smartphone and a YouTube account or a social media account can, can just start up. It's actually quite, and all you need is a few hundred followers really to have an outsized impact sometimes if you're outrageous. Anyway, that's an entirely different topic. I did, before we, I did want to touch uh, upon uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. We don't have enough time to go into the depth that it probably deserves, but you have been talking a little bit about some of the effects just on a macro level that you you think this might have uh, on the economy. And you were also, I think you touched upon just briefly in, in another podcast recently on the idea of universal basic income, something I wrote about a, a while ago. I thought we'd be a little bit more down the line in terms of at least discussing or debating it. We don't really seem to be, but maybe I'm, I'm not listening to the right conversations. Um, picking up on one of the things you talked about, happy to talk about a few different ones. But when it comes to universal basic income, the first thing that's worth noting is that it's a bit of a catch-all phrase at the moment, UBI. Um, it means different things in different countries, and it very much depends on the system that you're coming from. So when we talk about it, for example, in Ireland and versus the United States, um, most people in the United States would probably classify what we have in Ireland as a version of universal basic income. Um, I'm not advocating for it one way or the other, but you have to understand the U.S. system in terms of how unemployment assistance works and how more to the, it, it runs out uh, for a lot of people. We don't really have that in Ireland. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's it, it's better than the United States from that from that point of view. So, what do people mean by universal basic income? That definitely has not been well categorized. Um, am I a fan of it? In you know, even though the definition is not agreed, I think the the general tenets of it suggest that we've created all these amazing technologies, these really large economies, and if you divide it up between everybody, there should be enough to go around. Okay, I, that that seems reasonable. I I think taxation policy. Uh, some of the redistribution policies we already have in place are a better way to do that than universal basic income. And the main reason I believe in it, although I could talk about the economic sides of it, but the main reason I believe in it is because fundamentally work gives to people a lot more than just income. You know, people get a sense of satisfaction out of it. They get a rhythm to their lives. Um, you know, it's oh, the paradox of work. Mm -hmm. People, um, a lot of people would say they hate the job they're in, but they don't want to leave it. Um, and a lot of, you know, loads of studies about people who win the lottery and a year later are no happier than they were before they before they won the money or eventually actually go back to the same job. That Although they had. We, we'd all like to try that dilemma, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, well, one of the other practical problems is, you know, for every economy in the world, maybe except Norway. So let's just talk about the real world. To deliver a universal basic income today, the effective way is that we're going to give everybody 10 grand. Well, the only way we can afford to do that is really take from the initiatives we already use to support the poorest people. There's so no, it's actually yeah. very non-redistributive. It's, it's very non poorly targeted. In Ireland, that's a non-starter. I mean, and for good reasons. Why are you going to give somebody who earns 100,000 a year 10 grand? Well, the only way you can afford to do that is if you take from the Dublin City Council's uh, social housing fund. Well, mm. that doesn't make no sense. So I'm not a big fan of it. I am, I'll tell you one thing I think that we could do to maybe improve the conversation here in terms of the haves and the have-nots. I, I don't think it's going to solve everything, but it might help a little bit. I'm a big believer in cutting off intergenerational wealth transfer. Mm, so inheritance. Just be, pardon? Inheritance. Inheritance, yeah. I'm a believer in massive inheritance tax. Um, I think that we should encourage people when they're alive to do as well as they can, whatever that means for you. But if we're going to talk about people who are starting businesses, most people who do start businesses do, that, that are very successful do not do it for the money. Um, at a certain stage, the money doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't really count that much after a while. But, you know, earn as much money as you want. Earn as much money as you can, if you like. Build the biggest companies you can. But when you die, 
that's cut off and the next generation has to go again. And I think that's the kind of social solidarity, well, certainly one that I can buy into and I think more people can as well. So what does that mean practically? Well, practically speaking, I'm okay with 80, 90% inheritance tax above a certain level. I have no problem with people whose parents, there's this perception, well, my parents worked hard and they've left me the money. Well, good for you, but I actually don't think you're helping the children that much either. There's plenty of studies to, to prove that. Um, so let's, you know, there's, there's probably an optimum amount of money which we can all discuss and come to agreement on that, you know, you're entitled to earn or inherit 200,000 before you pay any tax. And then uh, step it up. But I, I don't see why people have to earn more than a million euros in, ta- in inheritance, not earn, inherit more than a million, and they're still only paying 30%. Whack on 80 or 90% of it, say, your parents did well, good for them, you have to start again. And that's the kind of society I think we can buy into because it enables people during their lifetimes to amass wealth, not for Mm. the purpose of keeping their grandchildren rich, but for the purpose of maybe being successful and then it restarts. The irony is that in the tech world, a lot of the most uh, successful uh, tech barons are kind of pledging to do that anyway. People like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, who are basically saying they're going to give away almost all of their wealth uh, during their lifetime. Now, whether they do or not is another thing. I absolutely agree with you. I think that's a much, much better platform to re- to redistribute wealth and X or an additional platform. Um, but I can tell you this: if you stood for an election in Ireland on that platform, you, you, it wouldn't be you'd be eliminated in the first count. I, I, I would suggest. Well, that's interesting. I mean, once again, this is good. Maybe we start at least having a conversation about, well, how is it that we're going to change things? And, you know, if you don't want to have that policy, that's okay. But let's all at least agree on what problem it is that we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because from my point of view, that does solve an inequality problem. I feel it's both... um, you know, good fiscally, economically, but also socially in terms of, you know, redistribution. Um, other people might disagree, but um, uh, I suppose good to know that that's not a flyer anytime soon. Well, okay, Jonathan, there was lots more I wanted to talk to you about. We ended up talking as much about economics and policy as, as we did tech, but that's okay. You might, maybe you'll come on at a future date and we'll, we'll, we'll pick up uh, again where we left off. But um uh, Jonathan Ruan. It's Ruan, isn't it? Not Ruan. Yeah, Jonathan Ruan. Because on that Mayo border, they a lot of them are Rowans or Ruins. Well, I, I also Ruins. have the, the American version I hear a lot, which is Ruane. 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 Ruane, please don't take my man away from me. Um, Jonathan Ruan um, from MIT, lecturing global economics and management in MIT. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. A special thanks as well to Fidelity Investments, who are currently the sponsors of this podcast. They are hiring in Galway and in Dublin at the moment, mostly in IT and engineering roles. So if you're interested, have a look. From me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Sunday and Irish Independent. Thank you very much for listening and watching, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Times are uncertain, but your job doesn't have to be. Fidelity Investments is hiring for tech roles in Ireland. Apply now at fidelityinvestments.ie.